Welcome to the Clifford Chance Talking Tech at Singapore FinTech Festival podcast, where our global tech and FinTech experts share key highlights, trends, and predictions from this year's Singapore FinTech Festival. My name is Janice Goh. I'm a partner at Kavner Law Singapore, which is in a former law alliance with Clifford Chance, and I will be your host for today. In this episode, we will dive into day two of the Singapore FinTech Festival, another exciting day bringing together the hottest topics in the FinTech space, and we have lots to cover. Joining me today are our associates and senior associates from our New York, London, and Hong Kong office. Uh, we have Mary Jane Yoon, Laura Douglas, Alex Sisto, and Sharon Zhang. And our special guest today, we're very honored to have him on board today, is our Clifford Chance alumni, Andrew Fu, legal counsel at Airwallex. Thank you, Andrew, for making the time to join us today. And without further ado, let's dive into the sound bites we have to offer today. Let's start with Sharon in Hong Kong. Sharon, uh, which sessions did you attend? And do you have any interesting insights to share with us? Hi, everyone. My name is Sharon. In this um, day two, I attend two sessions. First session is uh, um, about the cryptocurrency, the coin strategy, market changing impact series, building the value exchange layer of the internet. Why I choose this session is I, I would love to hear from like one of the founders of the um, Ethereum. So from the start, they, they talk about like the blockchain is actually one of the farthest adoption of any technology in the human history. So it grows actually at twice the speed of the adoption of the internet, which is very fascinating. So it has already created so many use cases and protocols. So there's just a lot of use cases in the crypto spaces. And the most interesting one is not only focus on the finance side, but also connecting to the other areas. So one thing I think pretty interesting to me discuss at, um, was that the value layer of the NFT, the non-fungible token, space is quite fascinating. So while some of the NFT, they represent um, the value that are purely in the crypto space, which means that the value only comes from people who are like really interested in this area, but some NFT, they represent access in the real legal value. Like one example is like the pretty hot, like the tokenization of the real estate. So I think the what they put it in, is in a very interesting way. It's like when you live in a city, either you are a homeowner, in which case that you are massively overexposed to like one asset or, or either you are just a home rent renter, which you, you're kind of like negatively exposed to one asset. But tokenization in the real estate kind of give you people the options in between. So you can actually participate in kind of like the investment in a in, in a real estate, which is like maybe worth millions of dollars. So if you take this into account, the liquidity of the real estate can actually be, be changed dramatically. Thank you very much, Sharon. Indeed, that's very interesting on how there is revolutionizing the real estate industry. So turning now to our special guest, Andrew. Uh, Andrew, I believe you attended the session on digital currencies. Uh, what were the insights and latest trends that were shared by the speakers? Hi, Janice. It's great to be with you today. And uh, yes, I attended a session that was uh, run by Jeremy Allier, the founder and CEO of Circle. And he was together with Sam Bankman-Fred, who's the founder CEO of FTX. So both big players in the digital currency crypto space. 
the one thing that really stood out from his conversation um, with Jeremy um, is that they had a lot of confidence and belief in the sheer superiority of digital currencies and blockchain technologies. Uh, they were optimistic that these technologies have undeniable benefits, and it was only the fear of the unknown or fear of sheer amount of work involved that was slowing down uh, their success. Um, that's it. They, they did run off the discussion by saying that acceptance of these technologies will take more time. They acknowledge that institutions, regulators can be slower um, than you and me, retail consumers, in accepting and adopting digital currencies. Uh, I found that really fascinating, especially in juxtaposition to the speech that I kicked off day two at the festival, um, which was by Ravi Menon, uh, Managing Director of the Monetary Authority of Singapore. Uh, his speech was entitled Future of Money, Finance and the Internet. And here's what he had to say, breaking down the three types of digital currencies. Uh, firstly, he said cryptocurrencies are not even currencies. He said they're properly more, uh, more properly called crypto tokens because they perform poorly as mediums of exchange and a store of value and are not anchored on any solid economic uh, fundamentals. And then moving on to stable coins, well, he likened that to a chimera, uh, which is the fire breathing hybrid creature in Greek mythology. Uh, he said that because of potential runs on the issuers of stable coins and contagion risk, um, he, he concluded that both stable coins and uh, crypto tokens have not been inspiring. Um, and then he turned to CBDCs. And you might think, well, as someone from a central bank, surely he would have a lot more positive things to say um, about CBDCs. But actually, he uh, spent a lot of time on retail CBDCs and concluded that the case for this, at least in Singapore, is not urgent. Um, and then he said, um, on a slightly sunnier note, that wholesale CBDCs um, have much promise and could radically transform the payment space. Now, whether you agree with the uh, guys in the circle at TX Camp or with Robbie Menon, I think the truth is the contrast has been drawn out. Uh, you have the techno supremo confidence from uh, those in the crypto blockchain space, and you have the more technocratic, systematic uh, caution shown by regulators and central banks. Thanks very much, Andrew. Indeed, um, it's really inspiring and fascinating to hear from the young founders and also, you know, to juxtaposition that against um, that word of caution that I guess is not uh, uncommon to hear from regulators. So that's really interesting. And thanks very much for sharing that, Andrew. Um, hi there, Ian Sharon. I believe you also attended a session on BLT. And would you be able to tell us more about that? <laughs> yeah. No problem. So I attend another session on DLT. So it's called Building the Global DLT Networks. And Chief Technology Officer of R3, they kind of share, firstly share his view of the go back to the 101, the fundamental question that what DLT is trying to solve. So they actually developed like the, the market leading DLT based platform Coda. So he say that when you look at an, any individual firm, they actually, and what, many of them are, are well, pretty run, uh, pretty well run, and they have sophisticated IT systems. But when you look at the, the interaction between the different entities, that level of automation is actually far below, and the cost of communication, interoperation, and also the synchronization among different entities are pretty high. So here is what um, the DLT comes in to tackle the issue. Like 
what he put was like bringing multiple entities together. So, and also he shared that when he designed the platform of Coda, so privacy and data protection, right, was at heart of it. And they actually found interesting that man, many of their customer don't really want to share data at all, but they still want to get the insight from the full set. So that actually gets you slightly out, out, away from the blockchain and more to the confidential computing. So they kind of spend a lot of time to study the intersection between the blockchain and confidential computing to see how they can like um, serve their customers' need. And also think it's pretty interesting to hear from the, the Contour CEO. Um, so when he was asked what to share, uh, what kind of experience he can share with the young people like uh, from running the, the Contour, he said that the building the network is really expensive and bringing the participants uh, on board is very difficult. He, he saw that um, the DLT distribute ladder is a very elegant way to manage data but he also stressed that it is a very expensive way to manage data. So it allows, it gives you, um, gives participant autonomy and store data within the legal framework, but it could be um, much expensive than having like a central database. So he put like database is not a tool for everything. Blockchain is not a tool for everything. It is like an ex expensive way to manage data in a sophisticated way. Thanks very much, Sharon. That's really interesting to hear. I mean, you know, we are all, you know, DLT and blockchain really does have these advantages. But of course, you know, we all also know um, that they come with practical risks and challenges too. Hi there, Alex. I believe you attended an exciting session on quantum technology. Can you share with us where, for where you're at at New York on what are the key takeaways and what you find most insightful? Uh, I'd be happy to. Thanks, Janice. So uh, just to introduce myself, my name is Alex Sisto. I'm a associate in the New York office of Clifford Chance. Um, so I was, I was really interested to uh, join the quantum computing uh, discussion, mainly because I didn't really know all that much about it. I feel like it's it's kind of one of those buzzwords that is flying around, but the, <laughs> it's only a few kind of people with real expertise that actually know what's going on. Um, so it was really great to get a bit of more technical insight into what quantum computing actually means and seeing what some of the potential implications in the next five, 10 years might be. Um, so one of the participants, Bob Suter, he works at IBM and his background was actually a photo of the, the current IBM quantum computing labs, I guess you would call them. And it really looked like one of the kind of computers we see from like the 60s or 70s, one of the early IBM ones, just these massive machines um, that are just kind of chugging away. So it was interesting to see like that infrastructure. And he explained a bit just in terms of like the physical controls needed to do quantum computing, where they need to keep the, the qubits or the, the quantum bits at near absolute zero, and they need to be operating in a vacuum. So it's these technical challenges that make it uh, really difficult to kind of scale up, I think. Um, but then the the kind of flip side of that, where those might be creating a barrier to people adopting the technology, uh, uh, Mr. Suter mentioned that a lot of the quantum capabilities will be cloud-based, so they're actually accessible. And he, he mentioned that some of the applications are accessible right now. Um, so there's uh, an interesting dynamic there where it could be quite easily accessible to a lot of a lot of people who are interested in using it. Um, I thought that was really interesting. And also just the, the sheer power and potential of, of quantum computing. He was mentioning that it, it could be 
a hundred times faster at performing calculations than than current computing um, methods. Uh, so there's a huge, it, it could be basically a force multiplier for any number of, of industries and applications. Um, so I, I, I thought the potential uh, was, was really interesting. Um, it did seem that to indicate that it was probably, you know, five, at least five years away from wide scale adoption, but definitely something to keep an eye on. Thank you very much, Alex. And that's really very, very exciting to hear. And thanks very much for, you know, keep sharing with us uh, and breaking down quantum technology in these <laughs> basic terms for us. Now, now, if I may turn to Laura from our London office. Laura, I understand that you attended a few sessions of the day on artificial intelligence, AI. Any key takeaways that you can share with us? Hi. I'm Laura Douglas and I'm a senior associate in the financial regulation team at Clifford Chance in London. And I attended a few of the sessions um, on day two around AI. And one of them that I found particularly interesting um, was about greener AI and the impact of AI on the environment. It was really interesting to hear the different perspectives from the speakers on the panel from Google and Microsoft, so some of the big techs. Um, as well as Dr. Daniel Clear, who is the CEO of Arabesque Holding, um, which is an ESG data and tech company. And in particular, this session really addressed two aspects of, of so-called green AI, um, both looking at the, the potential challenges around the environmental impact of AI, including the carbon footprint of the computing power needed uh, to test models, but also then on the other hand and on the positive side, the potential of AI as a solution to help firms um, navigate the thicket of um, ESG data that's out there and potentially direct capital more efficiently towards sustainable projects. One of the things that I found um, really interesting from the panel was some comments um, made by David Patterson, who is a professor and software engineer from Google about the importance of really getting your facts right in order to solve the right problems and tackle them really in an efficient and focused way. And sort of thinking about the first of those two questions about the environmental load that's actually driven by AI. There's been a lot of hype about that recently in the press. Um, particularly around claims for um, the amount of computing power and energy it takes to train large models. Um, and he then actually went on to do some um, more specific and focused research about that um, and looking at what are the factors that influence how much, you know, actual energy you're using to train a model. And if you optimised for the factors around what's the model you're trying to run, what type of processes are you using to run the model? How efficient is the data center um, that you're using? And then how clean is the energy supplying that data center? So if you optimize across all of those things, you can actually, in practice, reduce your carbon footprint by a factor of a thousand. Um, and so actually, when sort of you're talking about how do we make AI greener, actually, there are some very specific things that can be done, including looking at sort of um, the green credentials of the energy supplying data centers. So getting really practical, um, but I thought it was really interesting to sort of get behind the hype and, and dig into actually sort of what's going on in practice. Thanks very much, Laura. That's really very interesting to hear. And of course, you know, there is so much emphasis on ESG now. 
and it cannot be more timely to for us to hear from these speakers on how AI can help us. So now I'll maybe turn to MJ. Hello, MJ. Hi, everyone. My name is MJ Yoon. I'm a litigation counsel in the New York office at Clifford Chance. Um, there were a lot of really interesting sessions, I got to say, but I think the one <clears throat> that resonated with me the most was the global trend session with the CEOs. Um, you know, as my colleagues have just talked about, there are a lot of issues um, surrounding decentralization and the notion of Web 3.0. Um, but the CEOs kind of took a 20,000 foot view and shared their thoughts on where their respective industries were going. Um, Piyush Gupta at DBS said that decentralization is not a tech problem, it's a philosophical problem. And so that quote to me just kind of resonated not solely as a lawyer, but, but as a a human being thinking about where we as a society are going in terms of how our data is stored, how our currency money is stored, wealth is stored. Um, and, you know, I think the most um, interesting point that was made is that decentralization is not going to necessarily get rid of the centralized institutions, at least according to the speakers, it was going to evolve their roles. Um, and the reason for that is trust, right? So when you have a centralized bank, you've got money um, going through that institution. That institution is confirming, is authenticating the value of, of the wealth that you have put into it. Um, but when you decentralize, there becomes more direct peer-to-peer transactions. And um, how do you trust that, right? If I'm a store owner and I need to receive $100 from a customer that comes in and they pay me $100 in US dollars cash, I'm going to accept that because I know, assuming that it's not counterfeit, uh, the, the US Treasury is backing that, that bill. Um, likewise, if that customer hands me a Visa card, I'm going to trust that that piece of plastic and that you know transaction that is made is going to generate in me getting most of my $100. But if they pull out a small, shiny gold medal and tells me that this is gold and it is worth $100, I'm probably going to start doubting the transaction a little bit more. There's going to be less trust. Um, and if they tell me that they're going to send me a token worth 0.001% of this really cool, like rare Martin guitar that they own, there's probably going to be less trust, um, as well. So it, it was just really interesting to think about, um, how important trust was going to be as we enter this era of decentralization, you know. Crypto, it's it's hot, it's new. Um, blockchain, Ethereum, I, I think. But the the roles of the you know um, advisors are going to be more important as we get more players, more direct players, not the other way around. And that's something that Mike Wells of Prudential noted as well. That with Web 2.0 and the explosion of data, you know, anybody that could 
go into Wikipedia had a wealth of data just right at their fingertips. Um, but just because you've got lots of data doesn't mean you automatically know which data to trust. You need to rely on advisors to tell you. Thanks very much, MJ. That's really very insightful. I mean, trust is always an important issue for the financial industry. Um, there are just so many opportunities out there now, but also it comes with um, many challenges and issues to think about um, and to overcome. And now on the issue of trust, I mean, of course, we all trust that our payments would be secure and go through. And on that note, uh, may I invite Andrew, our guest speaker, to share some insights on the session on empowering payments with DLT? Thanks, Janice. Happy to. So this was a session that was actually much more a fireside chat with Dan Schulman, who's uh, the CEO of PayPal, and it was moderated superbly by uh, Joe Yo from the MAS. And I think the two big takeaways um, I, I got as Dan mused very freely about Web 3.0 and, and future ambitions. Uh, the first is super apps. Um, and I think he gave a little hint that PayPal may have super app ambitions and gave a glimpse of the potential for a lot of these financial service providers um, to also move in that direction, to, to go beyond uh, finance. And I think increasingly where we talk about embedded finance, where you have non-financial players uh, integrating financial elements or financial services into the offerings, you might see financial uh, players going in the opposite direction as well. Um, and he said this in the context of um, a trend he pointed out of more and more consumer platforms creating super apps where you combine uh, financial services, shopping tools, messaging services. And actually, if you think about what PayPal has been in the news for recently, it was a rumored acquisition of Pinterest. Uh, which of course is a huge step into the social commerce uh, and, and the shopping space. Now, they've actually since publicly withdrawn their interest um, after the stock price dropped um, in the wake of those rumors. But I think it's it's interesting little glimpse into um, what might be in the minds of the leaders of these uh, big financial uh, service providers. Uh, the second point that really stood out was on data. Um, and this is a point of interest for me because I, I, I spoke recently at a, at a privacy and security um, event. Um, and what was interesting was when Joe uh, teed up Dan for the final question and asked him to crystal ball gaze for the next two years and what the next big thing for payments was. Um, she baited him to talk about the metaverse, but he, I think very wisely, did not take the bait. Uh, he instead talked about the explosion of data, which Andrea mentioned earlier. And he said, when you combine that with quantum computing, which uh, Alex mentioned earlier, and machine learning, he said this would, in his words, turn the world upside down. That was his view. And he said that uh, the role of companies like PayPal was not to be afraid of data, uh, but to use it and to harness it to benefit consumers like you and me. Now, interestingly, he didn't talk about consent. Uh, he didn't talk about notice and all the boring stuff that we as lawyers dealing with privacy uh, talk about. Um, and query if this train of thought that he, he, he raised pushes the boundaries of lawful use of data. But it's definitely interesting to, to think about the potential use cases of big data, um, especially in a super app context. Thank you very much, Andrew. Indeed, the payments space has been a very exciting one in the last couple of years, especially in Singapore with the introduction of a regulated um, payment services act and its regime. 
So this is indeed a, a very exciting space to watch. And with that, thank you to all our speakers today for sharing your insights from day two of the Singapore FinTech Festival. Again, a special shout out to our special guest, Andrew, for joining us to share your thoughts. This is the end of our podcast. Don't miss the last podcast of the series coming up soon to cover day three of the Singapore FinTech Festival. You have been listening to the Clifford Chance podcast. Please subscribe to our podcast by visiting cliffordchance.com and follow us on LinkedIn. For more information on the latest legal trends and changes in the technology sector, please visit talkingted.cliffordchance.com. Thank you. Thank you.